All right, welcome to a new episode of Sixers Daily. I'm your host, Jazz Kang. Philly back in the win column once again. Sweep its two-game road trip, or not two-game road trip, back-to-back games on the road against the Charlotte Hornets. This time, 110-106. Wasn't pretty against a Hornets team again without LaMelo Ball, Terry Rozier, three other rotational players for the squad. But Jackson Frank joining me on this one. And before we jump into the actual game, Jackson, you do owe me a six-pack because the Sixers went uh, three and one on the road <laughs> trip like I predicted last week. <laughs> I, was, I was actually thinking about that before we hopped down. I was like, yeah, you said three and one, and then sure enough, they did. But yeah, you're, you're right. I appreciate you holding me accountable to that. So we'll make that happen. Yeah, I'll send you over the uh, the address once we're stop recording over here. And I'll, <laughs> expect that. I'll expect that on the weekend. But uh, uh, going into this game, interesting once again, the Sixers struggled. Joel Embiid, obviously the guy, once again, he, he 32 points. Eight rebounds came up with some clutch plays. Uh, this game really came down to the last three minutes. It was Danny Green hitting a big three. That put the Sixers up pretty much for good. Embiid followed it up with one of his own, and then he had a monster dunk. That put the Sixers up by seven. Looked like it was going to kind of be the end of it. The Hornets did stick around. Kelly Oubre got that steal late off of Maxi uh, That got things within striking distance, but ultimately um, Philly did hang on. So when you were watching this game, what are your main takeaways from this? And again, we're going to look at this from, uh, you know, I think the macro level, which is the Sixers are 14 and 11. They won three or four on this road trip. But what were some of the troubling signs you saw in this game? Because I, I want to get your opinion on, on a few other things on that as well. Yeah, I think the biggest one is is looking at Maxi. I mean, only five shots, fewer than Danny Green, fewer than Matisse Stiebel, the same as Shake Milton, despite playing four more minutes. Uh, he's, he's struggled pretty significantly since Joel came back. And some of that's to be expected. He went from kind of the guy because some of Joel's absence coincided with, you know, an absence from Tobias Harris. So he was, you know, the, the default shot creator. Um, but some of it also has been, they've, they've adjusted the offense and rightfully so around Joel. Um, you know, Joel's the team's best player, the best, best scorer, best, best offensive player. Um, but it still feels like there are two more possessions worth Maxi is kind of an afterthought. He's playing the dunker spot a lot. Um, and so that's what stood out to me is, you know, like he has to get more involved and, you know, Doc continues to run these all bench lineups, which sometimes work. I don't know the numbers right now. I know earlier in the year, they were pretty solid, you know, the, the kind of the net rating and all that, but, um, I really do think it would, it would benefit the team and, and Maxi in, in, in general to kind of let him be the primary shot creator when Joel's off the floor. And you saw a little bit of that. I think either in the first Charlotte game or stretches of the the Atlanta game on on Friday, Um, but they just got to find a way to get him more involved. He's such a dynamic player, especially when he can just have, have a big man who's a roller, which is kind of what Drummond is. Um, Drummond obviously has his faults as a finisher, but as we saw tonight, you can, you can definitely finish things Had a couple of nice lobs from Sheik Milton. So um, that was the biggest takeaway from this game specifically. It's it's like Maxi can't have five shots and yeah, he's probably got to be a little, little more aggressive and he's probably deferring, a little more than you like, but a lot of it feels on the coaching staff and how they're constructing lineups and, and offensive sets and actions to, you know, not really feature Maxi when he should be featured in this offense. Yeah, he's coming back off off the flu as well. But you look at his, his shooting totals, 21 of 70 over the past six games, now four of 22 from deep over the last eight games. You mentioned the struggles with having Joel back in the lineup, and obviously the Sixers are a much better team with Joe there, regardless of, of how good Maxi can be. But when you're looking at that, do you, do you think the fatigue might have played a little bit of a role in this? I mean, you know, you'll hear this um, at any level of basketball. At the end of the game, you got to make sure you're, you're, you're getting your legs into it because – um, you're tired and that's where you're coming up short on jumpers, but watching Maxi, the guy was playing 38, 40 minutes a night, you know, for that stretch. And the Sixers were playing, you know, a lot of back-to-backs four, three and fours, four and six. Do you think that might've had something to do with him kind of going through this rough stretch that he's had right now? 
I haven't really noticed that because honestly, the, the, the biggest bright spot to me in a lot of these games for Maxi while he struggled from the field offensively is I think the defensive activity has been pretty good. I think he's, he was, he was very good for stretches against Trey Young on Friday. I think he's had some good activity against the magic and the, and the wolves and even, you know, a few plays against uh, the Hornets on Monday. So um, to me, I think the biggest thing, as you mentioned, I think four of 22 from, from three over the last however many games, he doesn't feel quite as confident as he did. And understandably so from, from deep right now, um, passed out of a lot of sh- a few shots on Wednesday. And it makes sense because he was shooting over 40% from three. Um, you know, the ball is swinging his way. He was quick to either take a catch and shoot three or attack off the dribble. Um, when team ducked under screens early in the year, he was really quick to shoot it and you shoot those pull-ups. And right now when he's been a little bit of a lull, he's not quite as confident. That makes things a little tougher. We saw it last season when he was kind of, you know, excited from the rotation. And, and, and then when he came back from the rotation, you saw a little more confidence from three. So that's the biggest thing to me is, um, some of the shots around the rim that were falling aren't falling because you know, he is, has quite a diverse array of finishing skills, but sometimes they just don't go in because he's a six, six, two guard who is a decent leaper, but he's not jumping out of the gym. And so, um, those shots aren't going to fall. The shots aren't going to fall, but, um, just feels a little more hesitant when the ball swings his way around the arc. Um, but I don't really notice any fatigue. I just, I just think it's a combination of the jumper regressing a bit. Um, and I still think he's about 36% from three on the year, which is like totally fine. Um, for him and then just, you know, figuring it for him, feeling things out and figuring things out alongside Joel, who rightfully commands, you know, the most touches and attention offensively. Well, when you were referring to kind of how Doc is running things and especially with the rotations, like there was one stretch in the, in the second quarter there, the Sixers went on 11, nothing run to basically start. It was all the bench guys. Uh, you mentioned Drummond had a couple of lobs there. Matisse Thibel had a steal on a lay-in. George Niang hit a three, which, which caused the Hornets to take a timeout, but the bench kind of got things going there at that point. Then the starters came back on and we had a couple of terrible turnovers. Hornets went on a 14, nothing run. Um, some way too easy buckets there as well. And then at the end, Embiid had three fouls and Max, he was on the bench. What would you like to see Doc do? Because I'm of this the, the thinking is when you're coaching at, you know, in the, in the NBA at that level, I like to see guys, and I thought Frank Vogel did a very good job of this uh, a couple of years ago, especially, or last year, I guess now in the, in the bubble, uh, in terms of not necessarily going with what he had as set rotations, but going with maybe what the matchup dictates, going with the hot hand when he needs to. Because I was thinking at that point, maybe it would have been nice to get some bench guys back in, maybe to change, turn the tide a little bit going into halftime. So in your opinion, what can Doc do differently in terms of the rotations um, that you'd like to see him in terms of maybe getting Maxi more time with the bench guys or, or you know, shake Milton more time with the starters? How, how do you think uh, Doc can maximize what the team is doing, especially on the offensive end? Yeah, so I, I I would prefer honestly, you know, like I think the Sixers are fine. If they want to play five bench guys in the rotation and in across a given game, that's fine. I still just don't love the all bench lineups, and I think what would benefit the Sixers is giving George Niang more minutes alongside Joel because he's such a quick trigger, pretty good shooter, can attack close a little bit, even if it looks unorthodox. It's been pretty effective this year, um, and then letting Maxi kind of be that lead creator. I know Shake was pretty solid tonight. He was very good on Monday as well. Um, but I just, I just think you've seen kind of what Max can do when he's the focal point of an offense and that's, you know, produced 20, 30 point games, uh, on the regular. And that's not hyperbole. I mean, that's, that's what he was doing for, for a lot of the MB-less stretch. Um, I think that, that would make sense too. Um, like I, I just, I think Niang makes sense against, you know, alongside Joel and then Maxi doesn't really fit that great right now with Joel. Um, and so he, but he deserves to get his 15, 16 shots tonight. And there are ways to make it happen. It just has to be require a little more, you know, lineup flexibility than what we've seen so far. Um, but it is tough to, to, as you said, because the bench, 
you know, at times this year has really kind of invigorated slow starts or slow stretch, you know, from the starters. So um, I, I, I get some of why doc isn't just, you know, running through two or three or four bench guys plus a starter. Um, but I do think it's that that sort of approach isn't tenable in the playoffs because the Sixers have big aspirations with Daryl Moore, Daryl Moore at the helm and an MVP caliber player and Joel leading the way. So I would just like to see Maxi kind of be put in better situations. And that would start with maybe going four and maybe three, three bench guys. And then, uh, and maybe you put shake and the Yang as, as kind of the, the guys around the three starters and they let Tobias and Maxi know kind of anchor bench units because that his doc likes to put device with those bench units a lot but i would definitely try and get maxi more running with those bench heavy lineups which is what we haven't seen a ton of uh to this point of the all bench lineups yeah that's where he's been he's been most effective like you mentioned and and when joel was out for those three weeks you know yeah the wins didn't pile up but you saw what maxi can do when he's kind of the the lead dog on the offense and he's the one dictating the pace dictating you know what what sets they're going to run if doc's not calling them from the sideline so uh, yeah i agree with you i think maybe staggering the minutes a little bit differently uh to get maxi a little bit more time where he's going to be effective with the ball in his hands i think will help the sixers especially on the offensive end a lot of good good things from this game too especially that third quarter in terms of what we saw from joel Embiid and seth curry they combined for 25 of the team's 31 points helped the sixers again they've dominated the hornets in the past four years um when you're when you're looking at why those two and I, let, I specifically want to get into Seth because Joel is Joel and he's he's going to have big nights. You know, he scored, what, 75 points over the last two games against the Hornets. But when you're looking at Seth, what do you find the biggest difference with him, in your opinion, when he's performing the way he did today, when he had 23 points, eight times, shot four of eight from deep, and compared to some of the other games we saw, we've seen him play, like on Monday, where he's struggling from the field, struggling to get some open shots. Where do you think Seth Curry um, has to look at in, in terms of being able to get more consistent in delivering performances like he did in this one? Yeah, I, I didn't notice a huge difference on it. Like, I'd have to go back and look at the sh- quality of shots he got between these two games. Um, but, you know, in the moment, I didn't feel like Seth was getting bad looks. I think he was three of 11 on Monday. Um, and a lot of them just felt like normal shots that he'd hit most of the year and, you know, most of his six years tenure and they just were, were rooming out. Um, that's not to be too reductive, but sometimes, you know, it, it's a make or miss league. And, you know, Seth's been so good this year that you're just prone to, to, to portion that to three or more, three more of those shots rim in, you know, he, he ends up with 12 or 14 or 13 points and it's an efficient, you know, efficient outing. So um, I don't feel like there's a ton different, but the one discernible thing I, I did notice, you know, in terms of a shift was he just felt like he had a little more pep and bounce. Like he felt like, you know, when he's running those DHOs off of Iverson cuts with Joel Embiid, he was quicker to either take a pull-up jumper when he was open or, feet, or you know, dish it back to Joel and then flow back into another dribble handoff. Uh, you know, all, all scores are rhythm-based players. That's that's very clear. Um, you've seen that with Joel a lot of times this year. I think he started to kind of find his rhythm again like we saw last season. But it just felt like, he, like Seth had a little more rhythm in the sense of, Okay, the Sixers are, are going to run a ton of those Iverson cuts into side pick and rolls, triple handouts, whatever you're going to call them, with with Seth and Joel, and they were just a little quicker to get into that action to actually kind of press on the defense and make the and force the defense into a decision. So um, that's what stood out to me. But other than that, it just felt like the shots were falling a little more. Um, but yeah, they definitely needed a, a good game from him. I wrote my recap that um, he's been great most of the year. And the Sixers basically needed every ounce of what he's offered this year, and. And that was the case, eight of 14, you know, from the field, four of eight from three, couple of four or four free throws even. Uh, and the eight assists kind of snuck up on me. They mentioned that on the, on the broadcast. And I, maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I didn't even really notice him accumulate eight assists. They just kind of came in the flow of the offense. But I think it's a good sign for, for Seth and how he's, he's working offensively. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm liking what he's done throughout the season. Just want to hoping that he can find more consistency. Dealt with some injury stuff as well, but uh, yeah, I'm with you. He's putting up you know almost 16 points a game, shooting the rock amazingly, especially from outside what you've seen throughout his career. He's shooting uh, better than 40% this season as well. Wanted to wrap up uh, on this, Jackson. Looking at this stretch now, again, on the bigger picture of things, the Sixers, 14-11, climb into an official playoff spot, no longer in the play-in. At number six in the East, of course, that could change depending on, on the results of a few of the games. But looking at this upcoming stretch, a tough, tough five games. At home against Utah, home against the Warriors and Steph Curry on Saturday, at Memphis on Monday, and then next week they got the Heat on Wednesday and then at Brooklyn on Thursday. Uh, Going to be a whole lot tougher than playing against a Charlotte squad without Terry Rozier and LaMelo Ball. Where does one thing you you look at that the Sixers kind of have to at least try and address um, less than a day here before they take on uh, Utah, but you know before they even get into the final four games of this five-game stretch that they need to do to, to really focus on to make sure they get some wins against some stiff competition over the next week here? They got to find some sort of offensive consistency outside of relying on Joel to draw fouls or hit jumpers or Seth being a ridiculous off-the-dribble shooter. Um, they just haven't really had that, and they have guys who can step up to an extent. I mean, you saw Shake on on Monday. Uh, Tobias, I thought, was kind of quiet, but he's still efficient you know, in, in his production on Wednesday. But um, I just haven't loved kind of the offensive process you know, in these couple of games. It just feels so reliant on – you know, it was really reliant on Joel on, on Monday. And then, you know, I think Seth and Joel combined for 37 to Philadelphia's 59 points in the second half on Wednesday. Um, so like it goes back to, you know, getting Maxi more touches, getting him in positions where he can thrive again, like he did for that, for that Joel, you know, the stretch. And that's, again, that's, that's not to by any means suggest that like Joel is, you know, a detriment to, to Maxi. I don't think they're a great pairing, but I think it's more in the coaching staff to make sure those, you know, that like Joel can thrive and a guy in Maxi who might, who's probably, I would say the team's second best shot creator. Maybe if you want to go Seth, you know, in terms of pull up jumpers, um, but he still kind of benefits a lot from those cuts and screens, but um, that that's the biggest thing is just finding a way to get Maxi back on track and finding ways to rely less on Joel and Seth, because when those guys aren't in or when those shots aren't falling for them, this offense just feels like it grinds every possession and they're, they're passing back and forth along the perimeter. They're not really getting anything in the paint. So that's the biggest thing to me. And then defensively, I think Matisse has to figure out a way to get back to you know his form of last year. I feel like he's definitely not been as strong as he was last season. Um, maybe some of that is because he doesn't get to you know play with a guy like Ben Simmons, but um, they just don't feel as sharp defensively. They're not they're they're switching a lot. They're not communicating well on that. So um, a, a lot of issues, honestly, that I can go deeper into. But those are kind of the, the biggest things. However many I name there that I think need to be rectified before this this stretch against a lot of good teams. Yeah, this is uh, this is going to be a big stretch run. Like I said, though, they, they have the benefit of being fourteen and eleven at this point. That they kind of weather that storm of what they dealt with. And Doc Rivers said that at the uh, morning shoot around too, that, Hey, you know what? We're, we like where we are and we dealt with a ton of adversity, which they have in terms of the COVID absences, what they've seen with it, with the injuries. Uh, and they're still in a pretty good spot. So again, these five games, not going to make or break the season, but should be a good measuring stick. Maybe where the Sixers stack up against the elite of, of really the NBA. Uh, Jackson, I want to thank you for, for coming on with me again, as, as you do at least once a week, uh, appreciate your time. And, and we'll look forward to doing this again soon. Yeah, I always happy to talk Sixers, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. All right, and I'm looking forward to getting that six-pack too, my man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, coming up on the other side of the break, I'll have Dave Deckard of Blazers Edge kind of giving us an inside look at what's going on in Portland, how it could impact trade discussions involving C.J. McCollum, Damian Lillard, and of course, I ask him about a potential Ben Simmons deal. That's coming up after a short break. 
Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. All right, and we are back. Joining me now from our sister site at SB Nation, Blazer's Edge. He's been covering the team. Uh, longtime reporter for our site there, David Decker. David, before we jump into all the madness going around the front office stuff, we had some news break late on Tuesday regarding CJ McCollum. He's dealing with a collapsed lung. What does this mean for the short term for the Blazers already without Dame, considering he's out with, with his uh, ab injury? Well, and they're without Anthony Simons right now. So that's the third guard. Uh, and also in this year, little, their second uh, small forward. So they have Norman Powell and a bunch of guys on minimum contracts and rookie deals who haven't played much. Uh, that's what they're looking at to play at their smaller three positions, which means uh, they're going to be in trouble. That said, the Clippers game on Monday night, even though they lost because they were out talented, which doesn't usually happen, they did not lose because they were out efforted. And that usually does happen. So they actually played harder without their stars doesn't mean they're going to win but it might be a more pleasing brand of basketball they weren't winning the last couple of weeks with them anyway so the best bet is that dame and cj should both take their time be healthy get healthy again and then the blazers might have a renewed energy going into the final two-thirds of the season rather than limping along like they have through the first third Dave, how do you see this playing out with with CJ McCollum? And and for people who haven't read it, uh, ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski put out a report on Tuesday, kind of doing a deep dive on the situation going on with Damian Lillard, the Trailblazers looking for a new GM after Neil O'Shea stepped away. Uh, they let him go. So you're looking at this uh, from a from a Blazers perspective. When you read that part in Woj's report concerning how you know, that, and again, this is Woj's report, not saying it's, it's hundred percent factual, but, uh, and I'm quoting here, Lillard and his camp have been thwarted on leverage plays. Jason Kidd as coach, obviously they went with Chauncey Billups, uh, but Woj also mentioned this trading CJ McCollum and four first round picks for Ben Simmons. When you saw that, what was your immediate thought as a guy who's, who's, who's constantly around the team and, and covering them as well? I can't say my first thought on a family podcast because it's, <laughs> If you went in the cow field, you would have to watch out for stepping in that. That uh, that article painted Neil Olshay, I think, as uh, the person who's been protecting the franchise from Dame, who wants to make ridiculous trades and uh, 
who suddenly wants a $100 million extension in the year that he's not doing so well. And extension aside, Damien probably deserves one, given his track record in Portland and his loyalty to him, given who he is, fine. If he wants an extension, that's great. But that, that is coming out right now, that all of a sudden Damian Lillard is the enemy and the Blazers are such a bad you know, situation to be in, not because of Neil Olshay, but because of the people around him. Uh, okay, no. Uh, Olshay created this situation. Damian Lillard has been the one bright spot, the constant. Also, the only reason Neil Olshay had his job past 2015 uh, and this entire idea, I think, is a whitewashing of the mess that Olshay has left behind, which is not Lillard's fault. Dame does need to see changes around him if he's going to stay. He does deserve more money, but he'll get that in Portland or wherever he goes. I don't think he's worried about that aspect. And the idea that all of a sudden Damian Lillard is jumping out from behind a tree going, booga, 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 I'm now the enemy. It just doesn't fit with anything that we know. What does fit is that, you know, Woj has his sources. I think it's pretty clear if you draw the lines who those sources were. And this is a very curious way to do a post-mortem on the Olshay era, glossing over literally everything that went wrong and bringing up aspects that even if they're not strictly untrue, certainly don't weigh very much 20 games into this season and probably don't weigh very much in the hiring of a new GM, at least not immediately. You're mentioning, Dave, you're talking, you know, about how obviously Dame Lillard has, you know, he is Portland, you know, you know, looking back at the days of uh, Clyde Drexler and, and Terry Porter, and then you got into, you know, the, the jailblazers years. And then that, you know, now it's, it's kind of Dame came along at Brandon Roy, obviously along there too. And now you got uh, Damian Lillard, who's kind of the face of the franchise, uh, helped him get to a conference finals. They've had some playoff success, although they ran into a juggernaut warrior squad. Uh, you're look, you're looking at this. How likely is it? Do you think that Dame sticks around long for the long run? You're looking at the Blazers record 11 and 14, as you mentioned, uh, going to be without their top two guys really for uh, at least probably the next 10 days. We could be more depending on what happens with Dame's recovery as well as with CJ McCollum. But you're looking at the squad that's one in 10 away from home, likely not going to challenge for more than a, a playoff spot. You know, maybe be able to win around if, if Dame goes off. But when, when you're looking at this and from a Sixers perspective, you know, that has been the guy that 76ers fans are targeting. And, you know, Damian Lillard has been since we heard that Ben Simmons wants out and, and doesn't want to be there following his, you know, horrid performance in the second round uh, against the Atlanta Hawks. When you're looking at this and now given all this turnover, you know, them hiring Chauncey Billups, which might not have been Dame's choice. You've mentioned now with everything going on with Olshay, um, Joan Allen taking over for her brother, Paul Allen, the, the departed Paul Allen now. But you're looking at this. Where do the Blazers go from here? Is are, Do you think the new regime will come in and try and salvage what they have with Dame and, and try and make a move to to improve the squad around him? Or do you think it's time that, that the Blazers look at, at blowing things up? And if so, do you think that there's any chance that Damian Lillard gets traded before the February 10th trade deadline? Dame's future is completely up to Dame. And it always was. But now there's literally no one in front of him on the bus. I mean, Olshay is gone. Uh, Terry Stott is gone. Chelsea Phillips is a first-year coach. 
It doesn't have the cachet to influence that decision. Uh, Allen passed a couple of years ago, as you say, Jody Allen is a new owner and by most accounts is kind of detached from the franchise in most ways. Lillard literally holds his own destiny in his own hands. If he makes a trade demand, the Blazers are going to have to accede to that. If he wants to stay, the Blazers would be foolish not to uh, accommodate him. It all depends on what his mind is and where his heart is, and nobody can predict that. There's just the, the difference now is there's no safeguards. Uh, Neil Olshay was never going to trade him short of an absolute bald public breakup in which Lillard did a Ben Simmons type thing. And that wasn't ever likely to happen. So th the position was secure. Now the guardrails are down. It could literally go any direction. I do not believe that Lillard will be traded before the trade deadline. Uh, I think probably in the summer, he will start to reevaluate again. And he'll reevaluate every summer now for the remainder of his career, I'm guessing. He has passed the 30-year-old mark. Can be reasonably be expected, even though he's a high millage player, he can reasonably be, be expected to play another five, six years at least at a good level. I'm not sure that his prime isn't passing him right now. He might have one or two more years of that. It all depends on what he thinks he can do and the context he wants to do it in and the goals he's set for himself. If he wants to win a title, he needs to demand a trade. If he's in for a rebuild and maybe making another run where he's part of a unit instead of carrying the team, he can probably do that in Portland. They might be able to even make a run within a couple of years if they play their cards right. But the cupboard is really bare in terms of draft picks to trade. They're down to their last few players. They've condensed themselves into about six guys, only a few of which are actually tradable. So there's not a lot of assets there. There's no cap space. So, I mean, they, they're going to have to pull a rabbit out of a hat, and he's got to know that. It's probably two or three years down the road before they can retool sufficiently to allow him to reasonably expect to be better. If he's willing to write it out, I think they'll let him. But I am guessing if I were him, I would look at this and say, you know what? I gave it a shot and it's time to go. And when that happens, the Blazers, I think, will trade him. But I don't see them preemptively doing it, especially not before this season is over. Uh, Dave, that kind of leads into my next question for you. You know, looking at at the C.J. McCollum situation, hopefully he's back sooner than later. Um, you know, and, and I've read that it could take a couple of weeks, could take longer. We don't, we don't know yet. The, the team's going to have to take its time in order to see what happens with, with C.J.'s health there. But you're looking at, at a guy, he has two more years left on his contract after this, pay him roughly an average of about $34 million over those two years. But you're, you're looking at, at C.J. McCollum as a player. When you look at the situation the Sixers are in, they have Joel Embiid, a, a MVP candidate, playing at the top of his game. They have some very nice supportive pieces around him. Do you think bringing in McCollum, and again, depending on, obviously we would assume Ben Simmons, would be included in there, uh, likely some future assets and 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 maybe you know another player or two, uh, depending on how things shake out. But when you're looking at CJ McCollum as a player, and given the situation that Philly is in, do you think that moves a needle at all for the Sixers to? Because I, you know, I've said this from the beginning of the season that you have the Nets, you have Milwaukee, Chicago, Miami. I, I think Philly's in that Chicago, Miami, just a tier down from those other two teams. But when you look at CJ McCollum. What kind of role would he play on the Sixers? And is he enough to help them kind of elevate into not just playoff contender, but championship contender? Well, first of all, let's clear something up. I don't think you're going to get Lillard for Simmons because it doesn't make sense for Portland. Uh, I, 
there, there's some homely wisdom to it, but really what Portland needs is for Simmons to play beside Lillard, probably the small forward position. And granted, he can't shoot, but he can up their defense right away. Uh, and he can also provide a secondary ball handler, which CJ is, and they can slide Norman Powell to shooting guard. The defense instantly gets better. That's that's the uh, upside for Portland. It doesn't happen the same way if they trade Lillard. So I, I really doubt that will happen. I think the attraction for Philadelphia is even less in future assets than CJ McCollum and who? I mean, obviously, I think you have Robert Covington back. I don't know if Yusuf Nurkic moves the needle, but he's available. I don't know how he and Embiid would do uh, together on the floor, but he might provide some depth uh, there at least. Uh, I think all three of those players are instantly available, and that's actually a pretty decent haul for Simmons. Obviously, the center position, or I'm sorry, the central position is McCollum's, mm -hmm. and he is a legit 20-point scorer even when he's bad. And he's having kind of an off season because defenses are able to focus on him. And he's still almost at 21 points again. He can easily get up to 24 if he's a featured player. He is an offensive wizard. He is absolutely unstoppable uh, in the mid range. And he's got a great long range look, especially on the catch and shoot. You will not suffer a bit offensively. He's going to open up entire sections of the floor an entire new threat for the opponent. So if you compare Ben Simmons not playing at all and C.J. McCollum plus either Covington or Nurkic, I think it's very clear that the Sixers will be better off with those two players coming in. And C.J. will provide a new wrinkle. The question will be, do you have enough backcourt defense to avoid the Portland trap then? That it's just that the defense is so porous that opponents just score on you no matter what you do. I mean, is Maxi uh, compatible with McCollum or we, he need to go somewhere? Uh, th th those are the questions to answer. But talent-wise, there is absolutely no doubt that as long as he does not have to take over every possession, be the number one option, and be the only guy handling the ball, you, you would have a hard time doing better than C.J. McCollum on the offensive end, at least. Yeah, and I, I like C.J.'s offensive game. You know, I think the Sixers have, have guys like Tobias Harris, Seth Curry, um, you know, who provide some offensive punch, but I, I think CJ just as a scorer, pure scorer, uh, I'm with you. I think, I think he, he's an upgrade on those guys, but again, I think the Sixers are, are deep. I don't think they're, they have top end talent other than Joel Embiid. And you can maybe put Tobias Harris under there. Tyrese Maxey starting to get better, but I, I agree with you. I think it makes him better in the short run, but again, we're dealing with Daryl, Daryl Morey who has a habit of chasing superstars and, and seems focused on putting together a team that features Joel as one and somebody else as a one a. So that remains to be seen. Uh, Dave, we'll get you out of here on this. When you look at the situation, the Blazers are in given everything that happened with Olshay, given everything that happened now with all these reports coming out with, with Dame Lillard. And, and like you mentioned, who knows how, how true they are. Uh, CJ McCollum having this injury. Where do you think the Blazers go from here? Ultimately, in your opinion, do you think that the ownership and, and the powers that be will bring in someone who wants to focus on trying to get this team into win now mode? Or do you think we'll look at the new regime, trying to come in and say, you know what, we're going to rebuild this thing, get set up because the fans are great. They have, have wonderful support in the city, but maybe it's time to, to move on from the Damian Lillard era, just considering the fact that obviously it hasn't bought a championship and, and doesn't look like that's going to be the case, at least not this year for sure. I, I don't think they're going to have a choice. I think it's overwhelmingly likely that they're going to have to rebuild. The only question will be with or without Lillard. Uh, Olshay pillaged 
the franchise uh, in chasing his own convictions uh, repeatedly. I mean, misspent cap space, blue draft picks, made trades that added cap obligation without adding enough talent. And like I said, it's just empty now. I mean, if they wanted to trade, they have maybe a draft pick or two that they can move. And that's it, other than the roster you see in front of you. And that roster isn't very deep. I mean, it's, it's more than half uh, minimum contract players and rookie contract players, and not like exciting rookie contract players, literally, you know, 26th player in the draft playing out the third year of their contract players. So there's, there's not much there. They're not going to be able, I don't see how they instantly transform into contenders unless someone gives them kind of some kind of sweetheart deal, which every team hopes for and none of them actually get. So I think it, they haven't quite realized it yet. Portland hasn't quite realized it yet, but they're fated to rebuild and they're going to have to tear down pretty significantly to build back up. It's going to start with Nurkic and Covington, whose contracts are expiring. And by the way, if they don't make moves, the Blazers are going to get luxury tax, repeater tax for a team that doesn't get past the first round and might not even get into the first round this year. It's insanity. But that's where they are. So they're going to lose Nurkic and Covington. Uh, they, Norman Powell is the only guy who signed super long term. Obviously, Lillard and McCollum have a couple of years left. Uh, other than that, they've got nothing. So uh, rebuild city is where it's going to be. How quick and with or without Dame are going to be the only questions. No, it's going to be, well, you know what? I, I think the first couple of months of the season, well, you know, six, seven weeks that we're into it now, have been a little bit slow on the player movement front, obviously December 15th coming up, uh, which will be when a lot of the free agents will be able to be moved. And we should see some more chatter coming as we go forward. But Dave, I, I know you're a busy man. So I want to thank you very much for taking the time out to hop on, hop on with me and give us some insight into how things are going over there in Portland. Hey, well, you know, make CJ your 1A and let's make both our teams more exciting. He can do it. <laughs> and Simmons, there's no, I'll say this in parting. There's no better fit for Ben Simmons right now than the Trailblazers. He is clearly uh, fit exactly for the needs of this team. So I hope there's a way we can make this happen because I think it could be one of the one of the golden opportunities for both franchises. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Dave. Based off what I'm seeing from the fan reaction, it's Lillard on bust right now in Philly. That the city of brotherly love is not messing around with CJ McCollum. They they don't want anybody who's not going to move the needle. None of the Pacers, guys. It's Damian Lillard. But again, like you said, we have so many things left that have to play out. The Blazers making these decisions with their with their front office, uh, whatever Dame feels. So lots to play out. Uh, I'm sure whenever it does, we'd love to have you back on the podcast again. Well, welcome to your bust, Philly fans, and have fun until we meet again. <laughs> All right, that's Dave Deckard. You can check out his work at BlazersEdge.com, our SB Nation sister site. You can also follow him on Twitter at Dave Decker. That's D-E-C-K-A-R-D. If you want to check me out online, I'm at JazzKang21. And don't forget as well, subscribe to the Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, we are there. And of course, we'll have you covered at LibertyBallers.com. 